So just a, a quick question. How many people here like to make money? Okay, not everyone. Okay, maybe I'm in the wrong room. Is this, this is the Sprott conference, right? Um, how many people like to make more money than they did the year before? Okay, great. Uh, so that's one of my favorite things. Um, money is great, but I like to make more of it. I like to see my income rising year after year. Um, so I'm going to talk about a, a few of my favorite things today. Um, so this is raindrops on roses, whiskers on kittens. Um, fortunately for you, I don't know the lyrics to the rest of the song, and I didn't bother to look it up. Otherwise, would, this would have been a long morning. My family, one of my favorite things. Uh, actually, I'm a, a boxing fanatic, and uh, that's me. Um, this, was at, this was a member uh, after I made a wrong stock recommendation. So uh, this is part of our, our new program at the Oxford Club. If we get one wrong, you get to beat the snot out of us. So uh, Tom Wagner, who's, our, who's here somewhere, Tom Wagner's in the back. He can fill you in on that. He's our VIP uh, trading services uh, representative. Actually, that's, uh, that's me sparring with the junior middleweight champion of the world. And um, the, the three rounds pretty much looked like that. <laughs> Um, and dividend growth is one of my favorite things. Uh, and, and I'll explain why in a minute. Um, but essentially, with dividend growth, the thing that I love about it and, and why in my newsletter, the Oxford Income Letter, uh, the stocks that we recommend are all about dividend growth. We love high yield. You know, nothing wrong with getting an 8 10% yield if you can and if it's safe. But I would rather have start off with a 4% yield that's going up 10% a year for years and years and years than an 8% yield today and worrying about what's going to happen next year. I, I, like my, I like my money to be consistent and consistently growing. Uh, and here's why. It's, to me, it's all about buying power. So it's not about just the size of the check that comes in today. I want to know that my buying power is going to be stable or at least increase over time. So if you look at $1,000 worth of goods today, uh, what's, what's the, how much are you going to need in 10 years to buy $1,000 worth of goods? So here's a, a few different inflation rates at 2.4%, which is actually a little bit higher than we are today, but it's still historically very low. Uh, in 10 years, you're going to need $1,267 to buy the same goods uh, today. Uh, now, is there anybody here who thinks that inflation is going to stay low over the next 10 years? Not too many people. I don't either. But at 2.4%, uh, we're going to need 26% more money. At 3.4%, which is the historical average over the last 100 years, you're going to need almost 40% more money. And at 4%, which today seems like hyperinflation, but historically is just a little bit above the average, you're going to need 50% more money than you will today to buy the same goods and services. Um, that, that's very scary to me. Uh, so I want investments that are going to generate enough income to maintain or increase my buying power. Obviously, a 10-year bond's not going to do it. A uh, 10-year bond, if, it, if you're getting 2.5% today, you're getting 2.5% tomorrow, you're getting 2.5% in 10 years. And, and that's the same with any fixed income investment. Uh, if you have a dividend grower, you're starting off with a 4% a yield, if that yield can grow 10% a year, you can see in five years you're up at 5.9%, and in 10 years you're at 9.4%. Uh, 
look what happens with the amount of money that you're going to need in 10 years versus if you held a 10-year bond. Obviously, a 10-year bond is not going to get you there. A 10-year bond will destroy your buying power. You'll have less buying power today or tomorrow than you will today with a 10-year bond. Stocks, on the other hand, you'll have significantly more. So the assumptions here are you have a 4% yield, 10% dividend growth, and the stock is rising by 7.5% a year, which is the historical average since, uh, I think, since the, I forgot the exact age, it's in the 1950s. So you can see here, four per, at 4% inflation even, you need 50% more money, a stock will generate uh, way more than that. You'll have plenty of extra buying power. But now, what happens if we hit a bear market? Because it's very nice to make the assumption that stocks are going to continue to go up. What happens if we hit a bear market and the stock price falls 2% a year? Now, you might say, well, 2%, that's not, that's not so bad. That's not good, but it's not bad. Well, if we're falling 2% a year for the next 10 years, that's a hell of a bear market. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, the, the cumulative amount isn't much, but over 10 years, if you're down 20%, that's the significant. Ten-year bear market would be horrible. But you can see, even with stocks falling 2% every year for the next 10 years, if you're in that 4% yield with a 10% dividend growth, you're still going to have more money than you need, except for if inflation's at 4% a year for the next 10 years. You'll, you'll have just missed that number. Uh, but the other levels, at historical averages, um, and, and kind of just approaching that 4%, you'll still increase your buying power, even in a 10-year uh, slight bear market. Now, what happens if you reinvest your dividends? The numbers get very, very large. So if, even at 4% inflation rate, your stocks are worth $3,177 with an average return, so more than double what you need. And in this bear market scenario that we've painted, you're still up 65%, and you only need it to be up 50%. So I always like to, to say that for a long-term investor who's reinvesting their dividends, a bear market can be your best friend. And the reason is because when you're reinvesting the dividends, you're buying more shares, which kick out more dividends, which buy more shares, which kick out more dividends. So if stock prices are going down, you're buying even more shares with those dividends. Don't forget the dividend isn't going down. The dividend's going up. Just because a stock price goes down doesn't mean that the dividend is. A lot of people kind of lose sight of that. Even in, in weak markets and, uh, and, and a bad stock or a bad stock performance, the dividends can still go up. We had several hundred companies that raised their dividends in 2008 and 2009 during the Great Recession. Most of them didn't raise it by a lot, but they raised the dividends during these horrible years where their stock prices might have gone down 20, 30, 40%. They continued to raise the dividend. So if you experience a bear market and you're a dividend reinvestor, that's the greatest thing that can happen to you. The only time a bear market really isn't good for you is when you're getting ready to sell. But if you have that long-term time horizon, if your time horizon is 10 years and next year we hit a nasty bear market and you're reinvesting those dividends, you should thank your lucky stars because you're going to be able to buy more stock with those dividends, which are going to kick out even greater income, which is going to buy more stock, which is going to kick out greater income. And the numbers can get very, very large very quickly uh, over time after a bear market. So I want to talk about uh, a couple of stocks that, uh, that I really like in the natural resources area. Um, and they're, 
not always easy to find with the exception of MLPs especially. Um, and and if, you're, if you're not familiar with MLP, I'll, I'll just talk about it real briefly. A master limited partnership is a little bit different than a regular stock. Um, stock pays dividends, you're an investor, you're a shareholder. With an MLP, you're a partner and you get distributions. And they're treated differently from a tax perspective in that with an MLP, you, most of the distribution that you receive is considered a return of capital. So it's a very tax-friendly cash distribution. Uh, you're not taxed the 15% dividend tax or 20% dividend tax that you are uh, on you know, a stock like Pfizer. Uh, instead, when you get that distribution, let's, for an example, let's say 100% of it is return of capital. It's not always, but it's usually 85, 90, 95%. But for this example, we'll say it is. Let's say you buy the stock at $20, you get a $1 distribution, and all of it is considered a return of capital. You don't pay taxes on that $1 in the year that you receive it. Instead, it lowers your cost basis. So now your cost basis is $19. So if the next year you sell the stock for, let's say, $22, instead of reporting a capital gain of $2, it's now $3 because your cost basis has been lowered. So Uncle Sam uh, is going to get his money somehow when you sell the stock. But for the time that you own it and that you're getting that income, it's tax deferred. Um, the other nice thing about it is if it's in your estate when you pass away, your heirs inherit the stock and their cost basis goes up, back up to the current market value. So theoretically, if you own the stock long enough and you're getting all this tax deferred income and then you leave it to your heirs, it's like you got the money, the income tax-free. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a really nice way of, of putting off paying taxes on what is often a, a pretty solid yield. I mean, MLPs usually have dividend yields of 5%, 6%, 8%. Um, they're, they're, they're really nice investments. I really like them. Uh, one thing you do need to keep in mind, the tax... Uh, the, the tax filings are a little bit more complicated. You don't just get a 1099 DIV like you would with a, an American uh, stock you know, that pays a dividend. Uh, instead, you get something called a K-1 statement. And that K-1 lists how much of it is a return of capital, how much of it is income. Um, also, it, you, you could be forced to pay state income tax in every state that it operates um, based on Again, it won't be the, the full amount. It'll just be the amount that is taxable, which is usually very small, but still, it could be a hassle that you'd have to file in Mississippi and Texas and a, and a bunch of places. Um, so when you're looking at master limited partnerships, definitely talk to your tax advisor about it uh, because it can be a hassle for them to fill out the paperwork. They might charge you more. So you definitely want to make sure that it's worth the, the benefits uh, you know, the, the higher yield and the uh, tax deferred status, but it might cost you more as far as tax preparation or if you do it yourself, it might uh, take you a little bit more time. Um, master limited partnerships are also mostly focused in the energy sector. Um, they're not all of them. I think about 80, 85% are. There are master limited partnerships that are involved in the cemetery business, in amusement parks, uh, a bunch of different areas, but the vast majority are energy companies, and very often they're pipeline companies. Uh, and that leads me to Williams Partners, which is uh, one of my favorite pipeline companies. And the reason I like pipeline companies 
uh, is because you're not relying on the company having to pull something out of the ground and hoping, A, hoping they can pull it out of the ground and then hoping they can sell it at a favorable price. Uh, the pipeline companies are essentially, uh, they're, they're toll operators. Uh, they take a, a, a fee for transporting somebody else's oil and gas through their pipelines. So, and, and with what's happening in this country right now, uh, with, uh, with North Dakota, or in this country and in the United States, uh, in North Dakota, Marcellus Shale, and all the, the different natural gas fields and oil fields uh, that have come online uh, recently, this is a, a booming business. It's like having a, operating a toll road on the busiest highway in America right now. So it's, it's a great business to be in. Uh, Williams Partners is one of my favorites right now. It pays a 6.9% yield. Um, they've raised their dividend growth outlook from 6% a year to 10 to 12% a year. And again, I love that dividend growth. Um, most of the stocks that I recommend in the Oxford Income Letter, we have three different portfolios. One is, is called High Yield Retirement Catch-Up. That one is, is all about getting high yield today. Uh, the other two portfolios, the Instant Income Portfolio and the Compound Income Portfolio, are designed for dividend growth. So those companies are typically 3.5% to 6% yields when we start and we're looking for, generally speaking, about 10% dividend growth per year. Sometimes it's 8%, sometimes it's 12%, but generally we want that 10% raise every year. Um, and if I can get a 10% raise, you know, if I, if I could increase my income 10% a year every year, I'd be thrilled. If, my, if uh, the Oxford Club raised my income 10% a year, uh, that would be wonderful. So that's, uh, again, that's, that's kind of my magic number when I look for dividend growth. Um, it, it's... When you get to 10%, if you can start out at about a 4.5% yield, um, that will triple your money in 10 years if you reinvest the dividends. Uh, it will generate about an 11% yield within 10 years if you're, just, uh, if you're just taking the income every year. So that 10% number is kind of a magic number for me. Uh, in the uh, newsletter, and in, I have a book also called Get Rich with Dividends, uh, I created a, a proprietary system called the 10-11-12 system, and it's all about achieving those 11% yields and 12% average annual returns within 10 years, and it's all focused on this ten, the, kind of this magic number of 10% dividend growth. Obviously, if you're starting with a higher yield, if you're starting with a 5.5% yield, you don't need quite such high dividend growth in order to achieve uh, these goals of 12% average annual returns, um, but uh, 10% is that magic number. Um, and one thing I just want to want to clarify when I talk about this 12% average annual return, it, and this is when you're reinvesting the dividends, you shouldn't expect that 12% in year one or year two or year three. It's over the long term, over the 10 years, the position should average 12% per year. Um, so going back to Williams Partners, uh, they've raised their dividend growth outlook. And one of the main reasons is because they've acquired access midstream partners uh, which gives it increased exposure to the Marcellus Shale region to go along with the Transco Pipeline. Transco Pipeline, uh, I believe, is the biggest and busiest pipeline in the United States. Um, and now they have even more exposure to Marcellus Shale, which is obviously a booming area right now. So um, it's, it's, you, know, it, it, you couldn't be in a better spot as a pipeline company, in my opinion. Um, they're increasing their cash flow every year which again makes the dividend more secure. Um, Dan Ferris was talking just earlier about cash flow and how important that is for the dividend and, and should only be paid out of excess cash flow. And I agree 100%. When I look at a company's dividends, I don't care what their earnings are. 
you know, you very often hear about the payout ratio being, uh, it, which is the amount of dividends, uh, the amount of, the, of dividends being paid out of earnings. So if a company makes $10 million and the dividend is $5 million, the payout ratio is 50%. I don't care about earnings. Earnings are doctored. Earnings say what the CEO wants it to say. Uh, all kinds of expenses, non-cash items can be put in, taken out of earnings to hit that number that they want them to say. They can do stock buybacks to have the earnings per share number go higher. They can do all kinds of things. Cash flow is much harder to doctor because with cash flow, yes, you start off with that net income number, that earnings number, but then you start putting in and taking out the non-cash items like depreciation and amortization. Uh, and it's really a representative of how much cash a company has brought in, or if they're losing cash, is sending out every year. So cash flow is the most important thing that I look at. I don't care about earnings. And again, another magic number that I look for, I want a company to be paying out 75% or less of free cash flow every year. And the reason for that is that gives me the comfort that if the company has a, a rough year, if... Uh, you know, the, things go south in the economy or, or their business screws up, whatever it is, that they're still generating enough cash flow to not only pay the dividend, but to continue to raise the dividend. I want these companies to also have track records of several years of raising the dividend. That also gives me confidence that this dividend is going to go higher. So with Williams, they are increasing their cash flow every year. Now, with a, a master limited partnership, that payout ratio is going to be a little bit different. They have to pay out, or they generally will pay out all of their earnings to, a, to their shareholders. Again, not cash flow, but their earnings. Um, so you want to look at what they call distributable cash flow. That's, that's the term that they use for master limited partnerships. Um, but it's, again, it's, it's all about cash flow when I look at, at these stocks. Another stock that I really like that's recommended in the Oxford Income Letter is Potash Corp. Uh, very contrarian play. And if anyone is a subscriber to the Oxford Income Letter, you know that many of my picks are very contrarian, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one, it works. Um, I was an analyst on the sell side for a small boutique uh, firm in Florida, and if, if you're not familiar with sell side, buy side, buy side are the mutual funds, the pension funds, the hedge funds, the companies that are buying the stocks. The sell side are the ones that sell it to them. So the Morgan Stanleys, the Goldman Sachs, the uh, you know, Credit Suisse. So a sell side analyst are the guys that you read about and see on CNBC, the guys who initiate coverage on stocks, upgrades, downgrades. That's the sell side. So the sell side firm that I worked for was very contrarian. We were not allowed to put out a recommendation unless it went against the consensus. Uh, so if I wanted to put a buy rating on a company, the consensus had to be hold or sell, and vice versa. If I wanted to put a sell rating on a company, it had to be buy. And there's several reasons. One, as I said, the analysts are, are very often wrong. Uh, and it's not that they're stupid. They're not. They're very smart people. They usually are uh, Ivy Leaguers. Uh, they've been through rigorous training programs. They work very hard. But they typically will not stick their necks out. Um, if they have a buy rating on a stock, and everybody else has a hold rating or a sell rating, and they're wrong, and their clients lose money, uh, not only are their clients going to be angry, but their research director is going to say to them, everybody else on Wall Street got this right. How were you the one person to get this wrong? Uh, these guys make a lot of money, whether they're right or wrong. 
Uh, they don't want to be wrong and, and run the risk of, uh, they don't mind being wrong, they don't want to be wrong when everybody else is right. So that's one reason. They, they do not stick their necks out. They're very uh, reactive instead of proactive. How many times have we seen a company with some major announcement that sends a stock higher uh, and then the company upgrades, uh, then you know, the analyst upgrades the stock after that? Uh, this is a, a true story. I had a conversation with an analyst, a friend of mine. He's a, an analyst um, covering the drug sector. Company uh, had a phase three trial that absolutely blew up. Drug didn't work, wasn't safe. Stock got cut in half. He put out a, uh, he downgraded the stock from buy to sell first thing in the morning before the market opened. And I said to him, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry, you know, that, that one didn't work out for you. And his response was, oh, I don't care. I got the, the downgrade out before the market opened, so I get, the, I get yesterday's closing price. So on his official track record, both internally and the ones that are kept by, you know, Institutional Investor Magazine, he doesn't, he didn't miss that. He sold the stock, you know, his track record says that he sold it before the stock imploded, when actually his clients couldn't have. They could not have gotten the price that he gets credit for. Um, the other reason I like uh, being contrarian is because despite all the Despite me bashing these sell-side analysts, they do have power still. When they upgrade or downgrade a stock, it can move the stock. It can be a catalyst. So I would like there to be a lot more room on the bandwagon. So if I can get into a stock that you know, only five out of 20 analysts rate buy, well, when the company raises guidance, when they beat earnings, when a new development happens, then we can get more people upgrading the stock, initiating coverage, and, uh, and the stock can go higher. So uh, I, I'm very, very uh, a big, very big believer in being contrarian. Not every, not every position is, but a lot of them are. Um, and, and I like to find companies that are good companies that have been beaten up, that are going through a, a rough spell. Two years ago in the Oxford Income Letter, I recommended Hasbro. I actually went on Fox Business and recommended Hasbro. At the time, they were really struggling. And... First, first and only time this has ever happened to me, the anchor actually laughed at me. She laughed at my recommendation and said something like, are you sure? And I said, yes, I'm sure. This is a great company, good valuation, great dividend. They're still raising the dividend. Uh, they're going through a tough time, and, and they've taken some steps to turn things around. She laughed at me. And the stock is, is up 50% since then. So, you know, I'd rather have a stock that everybody hates. You've all heard all the expressions, you know, buy when there's blood in the streets, buy panic, buy fear, sell greed, all those things. Uh, it works. It really works. Uh, so Potash is one of those companies. Um, has a 3.8% yield. It's a low-cost producer. The weak prices are already priced in. Uh, there, there was a basically um, an agreement between the world's largest potash uh, companies uh, about where to keep the prices. And uh, I think it was last year, maybe it was 2012, end of 2012, uh, but basically a very large uh, Russian producer decided that they, they were done with the agreement and potash prices crashed. And so that was obviously not good for Potash Corp, uh, for their revenues, for their earnings, for their margins. Uh, it was very difficult. Uh, like any, any commodity business, if that commodity goes down, it's, it's a lot tougher to make money. Um, the situation has, is not entirely rectified yet. Um, there's the, the agreements still haven't been signed. There's, there's talk that, that this Russian company is going to come back on board with this agreement. 
regardless, uh, Potash Corp is still raising their dividends every year, despite the fact that, that they're having a tough time of it in the last couple of years. The stock price had come way down, uh, and these dividend increases were significant over the past four years. So they still have that cash flow. They're not borrowing money to raise the dividend. Um, this is something actually IBM, uh, in their quarterly report that came out this week, uh, you know, raised their dividend, share buybacks, and, but they were borrowing money to do it. That's, that's not what you want to see. Potash Corp still has the cash flow to raise that dividend. Um, and the analysts hate the stock. Only four have it as a buy, while 24 have it at hold or sell. Um, so that is, that's pretty extreme sentiment right there, and that's what I like to see. I like sentiment to be as extreme as it can be in the opposite direction. Um, one other kind of aspect of being contrarian, I like it. It's tougher to find in the dividend stocks, um, but especially with some of the small cap stocks, if you like a stock and you're trying to be contrarian, look for the short interest. If the short interest is very high, 10% or above, that's a, another uh, kind of sentiment indicator for being contrarian. I know that's a little off topic from what we're talking about, but that's, that is something I look for if I'm, if I'm looking at a small cap. Um, then the last stock I want to talk about, and this is a small cap speculative stock. Um, this is something I cannot give at, uh, I cannot put in the newsletter. Um, actually, whenever I come to these conferences, I do try to give a, a recommendation that I, I can't give in the newsletter. It's kind of a little something, you know, as a thank you for, for you guys uh, making the trek to be at the conference. Uh, so this company, uh, is, is the volume is way, way too small to put in the newsletter. It only trades 14,000 shares a day. So don't all go out and buy it at once. Maybe if you can kind of get into an agreement and space it out over the next week. Um, it's Kumba Iron Ore, uh, largest iron ore producer in Africa. Uh, currently at 10.7% yield. Let me be clear, this is not a, a, a dividend grower. Uh, some years it is, some years it's not, but it, it doesn't have that track record. So if I was going to put this in the Oxford Income Letter, which, again, I can't because it's, it doesn't have enough liquidity, but this would be in my high-yield portfolio. It would not be in the other portfolios that have that track record of dividend growth. Um, so 10.7% yield, largest iron ore producer in Africa, majority owned by Anglo-American Group, so it's, it's got you know, big backers, uh, great margins. And as I said, the dividend does fluctuate based on iron ore prices, based on currency. So you cannot depend on the amount of dividend income you're getting this year to be the same as it will be next year. Uh, but as long as, you know that it, as long as you know that, you know that it's a small cap, about a $3 billion market cap, as long as you know that if you need to sell in a hurry, it may be tough because of the liquidity. Uh, when I looked this morning, it had only traded about 1,000 shares uh, before I came on stage today. So uh, it, it, it's, you know, it's speculative for sure, but it's got that great yield. And if that's something you can handle, uh, I think it's, it's a really neat, uh, a really neat speculative income play. And 10% and yields are, are pretty tough to come by these days. Um, so today I have a workshop at 240, How to Multiply Your Dividends, a conservative strategy for 20% yields. And again, there'll be another special recommendation uh, that I can only give at the conference. I will not be putting that in my newsletter, which is the dividend multiplier, which is uh, the strategy for getting these 20% yields. And just a, kind of a little hint, basically what we're trying to do is make a series of trades all year long that just generate income month after month after month. 
And uh, so far, it has worked exceedingly well. Um, it, we've, we started the service in February, and there's only been one losing position, and that was down about 1%. So uh, knock on wood, it's been, uh, it's been doing terrific for us. So I hope we'll see you at 2.40, and uh, that's just about my time. So thank you very much, and I'll see you this afternoon.